Welcome to our weekly Church on the Rock podcast. For more information, visit us at churchak.org, download our Church on the Rock AK app, or like us on our Facebook page. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy our weekly podcast. Amen. Great, great worship. Wow. Some days you wake up and you're just glad to be alive. You with me? Amen. You should have, should have encountered a little bit about my week this week. Um, my wife and I were out on a journey with my children and uh, my two littlest, uh, Ethan and Olivia, and we were, we were doing that, um, that evening stroll, and they were on their bikes, and um, we came to this hill, and they both asked me, they said, Dad, can we go fast? Can we bomb the hill? You guys have been there, right? And, um, and Shannon and I have always been sticklers for helmets, except yesterday, two days ago. For whatever reason, we had left the house and had forgotten the helmets. And so I took a quick assessment of it, and I'm like, well, I mean, I grew up without a helmet, and I'm okay. And so I said, sure, just, and what every parent says in that moment, just be careful. So they start bombing this hill, and we're watching, and then we went through that moment, that terrifying moment, where we saw Olivia on her bike, and she decides that it would be cooler to stand up as she's bombing the hill. And then she decides that she's going a little bit too fast, so she puts on her front brake. And you know what happens next. She went head over heels, and Shannon and I are just watching helplessly our flailing child as she catapults herself over her bike and lands smack dab onto the asphalt. We had no idea as we were running to her what we were going to discover. So the next day after the cast and the dentist visit and all those kinds of things, by the way, she's doing fine. But after all of that, going to bed, she mentioned, she said, we said, what are you thankful for? Because that's one of our routines. And she said, Dad, I'm just, I'm just thankful to be alive. <laughs> Sometimes you're just thankful to be alive, right? Amen. There's another reason to be thankful today, and that's because it is Memorial Day, and this is a day that we honor those who gave us the ability to enjoy all the things in this life that we enjoy, particularly our freedoms, right? And um, it's a day that we celebrate because uh, it's a day that really kind of emphasizes what's necessary to preserve freedom. And what's necessary to preserve freedom is the courage of those who are willing to pay the ultimate price to preserve freedom. And so one of the things that we celebrate at Memorial Day is we celebrate courage. And courage is something I wanna talk a little bit about today as we get into our new series called Wanderers. We're gonna get there in a second, but I just kinda wanna set the stage. The fact is, is that Americans, as Americans, we embrace the model of courage. It's in our music, it's in our hymns um, as a nation. In fact, uh, take this for instance, we are the land of the free and the what? Home of the brave, courage. We believe in courage, we've written it into our code of ethics. We are the home of the brave. And our founders saw courage as a necessary ingredient, not only to preserve our freedom to become the great nation that one day we 
eventually became. Courage was going to be an essential part of the American experience. They didn't call us the home of the secure or even the home of the safe. They called us the home of the brave. They wanted us to bomb the hill. There were things that we were going to need to do if, if we were going to preserve freedom itself. Freedom had to be contended for. Now, here's what you all understand about courage. It is not automatic, is it? The fact of the matter is, is that we don't always possess it in and of ourselves. Courage sometimes comes hard. It's not automatic. It's not a given. It's not inevitable that we will possess courage. Courage is not a commodity. You can't buy it. Wouldn't that be great? I just need a little bit of courage right now. How much is that? It's not a commodity, and it even appears foolish at times. But it is absolutely, fundamentally essential lest we lose our freedom. We recognize that. We recognize that specifically at Memorial Day. Now, here's the thing about courage, and I want to put this up for you to all see. We have the concept of courage on the screen, and courage is this idea of doing, acting out, but it's acting out from the things that we actually believe. So confidence is the other word I want to put in front of you. We have both confidence and we have courage. Well, what's the difference? Confidence are the things that we believe. We believe in freedom. It's the things that grip tightly to us, the truths that we hold most dear, our values, our ethics. That's the things we place our confidence in. We believe in the concept of freedom so much that we will be courageous in defending it. Are you with me? And there's then courage, courage is the action. It's actually carrying that out. If we're going to preserve what we are most confident about, then we're going to need to be courageous in order for that thing to be preserved. Here's what our founders understood. Here's what we understand and what you know intuitively. There is a relationship between confidence and courage. And the relationship goes something like this. If I'm confident in something, it's not good enough. For me to actually uphold that confidence, or here's the word I want you to remember, build our confidence, we have to express it in action. That's courage. For instance, all of you at one point had that moment in your life where you learned to ride a bike. Maybe, right? Or maybe it was swimming, or maybe it was starting a business, or just entering into a relationship for the first time. And you knew all the facts, and you believed certain things. But it wasn't until you were ready to launch, right? It wasn't until you acted out. It wasn't until courage became a part of the equation that you actually experienced what you believe in real life. In fact, here's the way this relationship between these two words work. When it comes to courage and confidence, when we are courageous... I want you to notice the direction of the arrow. When we are courageous, we actually uphold or build the things that we believe in. These aren't static words or static ideas. They're dynamic. When we actually get on the bike and we actually bomb the hill, when we actually move in a particular direction with great courage, it actually proves that what we believed is true, that it's real, that it's accessible, that it's available. Because of the courage of others, we experience freedom. Are you with me? We tracking? 
That's what's taking place, and it's taking place all the time because you started that business, you experienced the fruit. You read about it in a book, you knew about it, but now you understand. Courage actually builds our confidence. But here's the other relationship that I want you to understand before we get into our passage this morning. If we fail at courage, we actually lose confidence. If we don't do the things that we know to do, we actually begin to undermine and edge out and edge away and shake up our confidence. And the things that we were once secure over, the things we once totally believed and bought into, if we fail to keep living those things out in courageous ways, we will actually undermine our own belief system, our own confidence. There were things that you were once confident of, but because you haven't done them in a while, you're not sure you can even do them. For me, it's a backflip off of a swing set. I mean, there was a day, there was a day I not only had confidence, I had courage, and man, I executed. And everybody on the playground said, that guy can do a backflip. There was no doubts in my mind. Now, doubt has entered. Why? I haven't done it in a long time. If we don't continue to express courage, we actually lose confidence. And here's the catcher. When we begin to lose confidence, that is the seed bed, that is the foundation for another word I want to introduce to you, and that is for wandering, which is where we get the title for our series in the book of Numbers. When we don't act in courage, we go backwards, we lose confidence, and when we lose confidence, that is when we begin to wander, we begin to drift, we begin to look for new sources of confidence. And that can be a dangerous place to live and that can be the root of some of our worst failures. What is it like to wander? It's living life without connecting the dots. It's living a life without the mileposts, the mile markers. It's living life without the boundaries. It's living life without what you know to be true, being true. And as a result, you are somewhat aimless. You don't really know why the activity that you're in has any purpose, meaning, or value, or significance. And it's an awful place to live. It's an aimless wandering through life. Spiritually, it just means losing your way. Emotionally, it's horrible. When you are wandering through life, well, nothing seems really colorful, nothing seems significant, everything seems gray. It's a place many of us live. We live there in our marriages, we live there in our jobs, we live there in our relationships and with our kids, and we don't know what step to take or what the next direction is, and that's a horrible place to live emotionally. God doesn't want us to live there. Actually, it feels so bad because he never designed us to live there. I believe God designed us to live in places of courage. So one of the great things that we're going to get out of this series is how to live there. Because when it comes to this series, we're coming to a book, the book of Numbers, which sounds less than courageous and somewhat boring. Actually, quite mundane. But the real idea, the real title of this book is Wilderness. Now that's way more exciting, right? The, the idea behind numbers, or the, the, the idea behind the title of the book, um, is, is that there is this wilderness experience. And the reason for the wilderness experience is because God brought a bunch of people out of slavery into not green grass and water all around, 
but actually brought them into a wilderness experience. It's just like that story about Jesus where he enters into his ministry, and then instead of becoming king, he goes into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days. It's like that, and sometimes that's the way life is. And so there's this incredible wilderness experience, but here's what I want you to know about this experience in Israel's history and God's agenda there. God had actually taken a group of people, made certain promises to bless them, and through them to bless the entire world. That's incredible. And at this point, at this time, when the history was ripe for this, he leads them out of Egypt, and he does incredible, miraculous things, and he literally births a new nation with a new identity and fills them with purpose and power and destiny. Who wouldn't want to live there? He brings them into the wilderness from enslaved to empowered. Great people take on great responsibilities. So he imparts to them his law, and then he calls them to be courageous. Everybody knows on the onset of this great journey that the destination is not camping in the wilderness. The destination, the great destination of this journey will be encountering giants and walled fortresses in the land of Canaan. Everybody knows that they actually have to train for war because they're going to have to contend for the land and take possession of it. That God has promised it. Actually, one of the cool things that Numbers lets us see is that God had actually removed the protection from Canaan. It had viewed itself, the inhabitants of the land had viewed themselves as supernaturally protected. So God tells the children of Israel, I removed the protection, it's all yours, but you're going to have to fight for it. They all knew that, and so they end up moving in that direction. Canaan was opened in God's eyes. Now they just had to go forward. Interesting is who writes the book of Numbers. Moses does. If you know anything about Moses, one of the things he's known for is exceptional leadership. Actually, some of the wisdom of Moses and the character who Moses is as a person, as a man, is going to follow Israel for the rest of their history, and you're going to reread this story over and over and over again because it becomes so part of the character and the quality of the Israelites all the way up until Jesus' day in the writing of the New Testament. Maybe second only to Jesus Christ is the influence of Moses. What's also interesting about Moses is although he was an exceptional leader, he also had a failed marriage in the past. He had a thing for foreign women, and he personified God as a nursing mother, which is a little weird, right? He also, he also was prone to anger. He was prone to anger, and yet God uses Moses in such a profound way. That ought to encourage you. You remember the story of Moses, how God called him into ministry. Moses was a humble man. He didn't need to lead a people, right? But he steps into this place of courage, and he leads these people despite his history and his past. And there he is, and he wanders in, and now, as he writes the book, and this is critical, as he writes the book, he isn't actually writing it for the generation that were called out of Egypt, he's actually writing it for the generation that was going into Egypt, which is telling. 
because it means that the generation that was called out that was supposed to take possession didn't take possession, and as a result, they wander. We know the story. They wander for 40 years in the wilderness. They die in the wilderness, and now Moses writes about their failures so that the next generation won't make the same mistakes that their fathers made so that they can actually go in and take possession, which is what God had designed all along. Which means this, every word that Moses writes down is not the whole story, it's not every story that took place, it's specific stories for a specific group of people so that they can do a specific task and experience everything that God had for them in the land of Canaan. As a result, every word matters. So we get into the story, God's got them in the middle of the wilderness, they're training for battle, he's given them some rules to live by, he's ordered their society, and everything has been going good up until chapter 11, which is where we're gonna enter the text in the book of Numbers, where we encounter the most important word in our sermon today, and it's the word hardship. Listen to what we find in chapter 11, verse one. Chapter 11, verse one, now the people began complaining openly before the Lord about hardship. Hardship's kind of an interesting thing because it's relative. Like I thought this week I had a pretty difficult experience with my daughter Olivia. It was a pretty significant hardship and she probably thinks it's a significant hardship. Her arm is in a cast, right? But if I was to share that and then you were after service to come and share your story of hardship this week, I might discover that my hardship seems awfully small and insignificant compared to whatever it is that you're going through. Hardship is relative, it has, that, it has that dynamic, right? And the question is, what was the hardship that would cause a people so blessed who had just been released from slavery to actually openly say, God, you've done us wrong? Well, here's what it is. They had, they had, constant setting up tents, taking down tents. And then the next day they would set up the tent and then they would take it down. And then they would move and they would wander. And then get this, they would set up the tent and then they would take it down. It does sound hard, doesn't it? Actually, hang in there with me for just a moment. How fun is the everyday mundane? Are you able to connect the dots with the everyday mundane, the chores of life, with the grand purpose God has for your life? The fact of the matter is, is that they weren't able to connect those dots. Day after day had gone by, time had moved on, they hadn't actually taken anything over. They were still just wandering in the desert. And at some point in time, it dawned on them that there was a time in their life where they had some stability, where they had some boundaries, where there were some rules that were predictable. There was something that could satisfy them. But it was in the past. It was not in the present. And as a result, they began to lose heart to lose courage, and besides, every day they were training for war. And I imagine in this moment, as a family in the tent, father would look at the wife and say, God wants us to fight the Canaanites, but Johnny, I mean, look at him, he's not ready, he's not an athlete, he takes after your side, honey. 
I mean, I mean, they're going to slaughter us. What are we going to do? And over time, the conversation and the murmuring grew to the point where they didn't believe that the God who had rescued them in the past could any longer rescue them in the future. And over time, the chores of life just kind of crowded out the course of hope that they had begun their journey with. Well, in this moment, God responds. This is a response that is alarming. He says this, when the Lord heard, remember this was an open declaration against God, a complaint, when the Lord heard, his anger burned, and fire from the Lord blazed among them and consumed the outskirts of the camp. And it's interesting because uh, this, is, this is actually an emotional God making a display of himself. But it's alarming, right? I mean, how can we buy into a loving God and an angry God? And so many people have even thrown out books like this altogether because God appears angry. On the other hand, on the other hand, this is an emotional God. Unlike all the other gods of the land, this was a God who was personal. He was actually with them. He was with them in the room, as it were. He was a God who wasn't going to hold anything back. He was totally transparent. His motions would be on full display for all to see. And he wasn't going to be concerned about the impact. He was going to be real. He was going to be raw. And so actually what happens on the inside turns itself into fire on the outside, which is super cool because it makes itself into a movie, right? The Incredibles. Remember the little baby? And he gets angry and then... You thought they came up with that idea. No. Something's actually taking place. There's a superpower on display. And the people don't run and hide. They actually name that place the place where God burned. God was actually exposing his emotions. There was actually something healthy going on there. So he was in real relationship with the people. Well, that's story number one, and that's God's response to story number one. In this section of numbers, there's three stories. We only have time for two. That's story number one. Here's the second story, the second moment of failure, and we're going to look at God's response, and then we're going to get some takeaways from it. Here's the second story, picking up in verse four. The riffraff among them had a strong craving for other food. I didn't translate that. The translation is riffraff. And the riffraff is a technical word for mixed multitude. See, when God had called Israel out of Egypt, he didn't just call, call ethnic Jews. He actually um, uh, had a number of other nationalities and ethnicities join the Israelites. They saw the power of God on display. They saw Pharaoh removed from the power that he had assumed. They saw God promising specific things, and they got on board with it from Ethiopia, Nubia, and all over Egypt. And so this mixed multitude joins the Israelites in their great journey, and God, who is God and always has been a God of all nations, completely rallies around them and accepts them in. In fact, Moses actually marries a Cushite woman because she's part of that mixed multitude that joined the Israelites in the wilderness. And so here they are in the wilderness, but they had something different. They didn't know all the customs necessarily of the Israelites, but what they did know was the life that they had left. And they knew that there were some certain things that they really, really enjoyed about the life that they had left. And we can all relate to that. Particularly, they had a strong craving for different food. It's like when you go to that, you know, restaurant that, you know, isn't your favorite and and you go there because your wife wants you to go there, and she likes that kind of food, and you can't stand that kind of food, and, 
and you have this deep craving for a hamburger, amen? It's that. And here they are, and they're just like having a craving. They have an appetite, and they want something more tasty. Well, see, God had been providing something for them. It was called manna, and it's described in this passage, but it wasn't good enough any longer. And they kind of lead the Israelites in this complaint. The Israelites wept again and said, who will feed us meat? You know, you're right. We've just been having manna. We want some meat. I mean, who can't relate to a little bit more meat? So they continue, and this is what they say. Here's what we remember. We remember the free fish we ate in Egypt. Remember those days? Along with the cucumbers and melons. I just planted those yesterday. Leeks, onions, and garlic. There was something spicy, something rich, something good where we came from. And we don't find it out here. So we have an appetite for something more. But here's what you've done, God, verse 6. Now, now, our appetite is gone. There's nothing to look at but this manna. The very provision of God that they had once celebrated and believed in no longer held its allure. And they wanted to release it. They wanted to do away with it altogether. And they just wanted a little meat. Then since they were saying to God, God, we've lost our appetite. Or more likely, God, we actually have a different appetite. We want something different than you're willing to provide now. Well, we get in on the response of God to this complaint in verse 10. Moses heard the people, family after family, weeping at the entrance of their tents. You thought you were a food connoisseur. You've probably never done this because you didn't get what you wanted to eat. He saw them weeping at the entrance of their tents. It was bigger than food. It was a lack of trust in God. We're going to see that in a second. And the Lord, as a result, was very what? Say it with me. Angry. The Lord was very angry. Moses was also provoked. Moses is like, wait, something's wrong. There's an injustice that's been done. God is angry at the Israelites for complaining. Moses, however, is angry, I think, at God. Look at what we find next. So Moses asked the Lord, why have you <laughs> brought such trouble on your servant? Why are you angry with me? And why do you burden me with these people? And listen to this. Did I conceive all these people? And the rhetorical question was to be answered with a no, right? No, I didn't conceive them. And the emphasis is, God, you did. God, you gave birth to this nation. You're the one who did this. You made this happen. And I'm the one who has the consequence. Did I conceive these people? Did I give them birth so you should tell me, carry them at your breast as a nursing mother carries a baby to the land that you swore to give to your ancestors? So God responds. He gets into argument. He gets into the fray. And this is what he has to say to the children of Israel. He says this. This is his response. You will eat not for one day or two days or five days or 10 days, or 20 days, but for a whole month until it comes out of your nostrils and becomes nauseating to you because you have, and this is the catcher, right? You haven't just rejected my food. You have rejected me. You've rejected my provision in your life. I have called you into this place 
to train you, whether it's through food or whether it's through regulations or whether it's through offerings or whatever it is for, I have called you into this space, into this unique space. I rescued you from slavery so that you would be able to have every tool you needed to be able to take on giants. And all you can see is what's in the past. Because of your lack of courage, the things that were once blessings, the things that were once things you could count on, the things you once believed in and celebrated, you no longer celebrate. And you have begun to wander from me. Because they lost courage, they lost confidence, and they had begun to wander. And so there is a severe consequence as a result. The question is, why is God so angry? And maybe you know the answer to that, but let's just tease this out for just a minute because the reality is, is that a lot of us stumble over the anger of God. But did you ever think that perhaps there are good reasons for you and for me and for God to be angry? That it's an emotion that you and I experience, and it's not always in the right direction. It doesn't always lead us in the right direction, but, but there are moments when anger and anger expressed is actually appropriate. See, what was really at the heart of the matter here is that their appetites had begun to overrule God's objectives, which sounds absurd, right? Food was literally causing them to move away from all that God had planned for them. You see, God was interested in food. He was bringing them into a land filled with what? Milk and honey. He absolutely had their best interest in mind. He promised them from the very beginning that everything the Canaanites enjoyed, they would soon enjoy if only they would obey. And they had heartily said yes to that contract. But all of a sudden, because of a lack of courage, they had lost confidence in the thing they once celebrated and as a result had begun to wander away. Paul calls this an appetite that can become like God in Philippians. Their appetites are their gods. Instead of following the plan of God for your life, your appetites, your hunger is so pronounced in your life. It's all you can think about. It's all you can invest in. It's all you can do. As a result, it actually takes you off course from the plan God has for you, and it becomes a God itself. You see, there's nothing wrong with appetites. There was nothing wrong with desiring meat or the spices. There was everything wrong if those things became everything and eclipsed the plan of God, the good plan of God that he had destined for those Israelites. So God gives them what they wanted. You will eat. You will eat. It's interesting because probably one of the worst judgments in the scriptures is not God stopping you from bad behavior, but allowing you to persist in it. Because there's a consequence to it. He allows them to experience the very thing they wanted and rather than entering the land, in a sense, they never leave, really, Egypt. They wander, and then they die. I think this highlights something else as well I want to focus on, and that is that when we lose courage, we begin to buy into the idea that somehow less is more. 
It sounds humble, really. It's this idea, it's that, God, we could all do with less, less trials, less struggles, less, just give me less of the things because they're encumbrances, they're in my way. If I could just do with less, then I could be happier, less danger, God, more safety, but less danger. In fact, for many, a life of less is the only dream worth pursuing. But pursuing less can actually cause us to settle for less, and God wants so much more for us. And as a result, he places us in wilderness experiences, in contexts of courage. Courage looks different, doesn't it? You remember the prayer of Jabez, God, expand my borders. What's that all about? That's the idea of God. There are things I must fight for to enjoy and uphold the promises you have given me, and I will fight for those things so that your promises can be realized in my life. The things that I value, the things that I hold, Dear, the truths that have gripped my heart, I'm going to live those things out. So God, would you expand my borders? I'm an expansionist. And something happens spiritually and something happens emotionally in that experience with God. And God has a way of blessing that kind of a prayer. Remember Nehemiah. Nehemiah sees what was going on in the land of Egypt, excuse me, the land of Israel um, under, under uh, pagan dominance and says the walls have been torn down and his heart is broken over it. And so he petitions the king, which was incredibly courageous. And he gets permission because of that petition to go and to rebuild the walls. And the reason Nehemiah is rebuilding the walls is not because he was seeking his own safety, but because he was seeking to rebuild the very walls and the very streets that 400 some odd years later Messiah would actually walk through. He believed the promises of God. And because he had confidence in the promise of God, he decided to walk that out with great courage. And as a result, he experienced the blessing of God and he maintained the course. And we see the Messiah walk through those very gates. See the relationship? We were never called to settle for less, to take it easy, to slow down. We were called to so much more. Ask, Jesus says, and what? It will be given. Ask. See if I won't just open the windows of heaven and pour out my blessing. It's a place we must live. And I think God's heart was grieved. And as a result, his emotional response was anger. And it's something you and I can relate to. Some people just want less. But God calls us to more. And the more wasn't just for them. And this is critical, and don't miss this. You see, God isn't just about you and your generation. We have a tendency to focus all our efforts on today, all our efforts on our generation. It's as if our moment, our time, must be the most important time in all of history. But did you know that God has a different objective in mind? And when he calls Israel out of Egypt, he says, I am not only with you, I'm not only in it with you, I am in it for your children and your grandchildren and their grandchildren. So if you could just be courageous and do what I told you to do, they would be blessed. And doesn't that matter? No, the fish and the spices of Egypt matter, God. Because it's kind of all about me. And so they lost their way literally in the wilderness. Nehemiah had a completely different objective, didn't he? 
His objective was at great sacrifice, he would build the walls that future generations would enjoy. We live in a society that's so temporary because we're so self-focused, but what is it that we're building for the coming generation? I know you think this is the last generation. You look around, but what if it isn't? What are you building? Are you functioning out of the promises of God and living those promises out in your everyday experience? We have to sacrifice if we're gonna gain for the next generation, which leads me to this thought, which I think is important. We have to sacrifice sometimes who we are for what we will become. There are moments when we just have to sacrifice a little bit about who we are for what we will become and for those who will experience the blessings of our sacrifice. It's Memorial Day. You can connect the dots. We have to sacrifice if we're going to pass on blessing to the next generation. Whether it's in our parenting, stop being a helicopter parent, stop protecting, let them bomb the hill. Tell them to put their helmet on, but let them bomb the hill. How else will they learn courage? Whether it's in business, hey, you know you're supposed to start that thing. What are you waiting for? If not now, then when? Did God not put that thing into your heart? Remember that phone call and you knew you should call? Don't wait till it's too late. How about some courage? Maybe, maybe you know somebody that never married because they just never could get there and begin. Some people are afraid to even start families, but God's already blessed it. Yeah? See, courage is required for us to preserve not only our freedom, but every good thing that God has for our lives. It is a time for courage. So I wanna end and call the team up and I wanna share with you a person that um, is probably one of the more courageous people I know. And I have four children and a wife and they're all courageous, but I just wanna highlight my daughter, Kate, because she's had to overcome some things that not everybody has had to overcome. She was breached in the womb, and when she came out, the cord was wrapped around her neck, and it was almost as if that started uh, a process of her not trusting her own body to make it. And she had enough experiences and enough stories with people that she knew that she was close to with cancer that it got into her mind. And I remember as a little girl um, sitting on her bed and we were closing the day with some prayer. And in the middle of my prayer, I was cut off because she burst into an enormous panic attack. And she said, Dad, my brain is about to explode. And we all just jumped too, and I thought maybe this is a panic tech, but I don't, I don't know what it is. And so we jumped into the car and we started zooming down the road way faster than we should have in the middle of the night because these things always happen in the middle of the night. And that just led from one thing to another, from brain x-rays to finally figuring out that she wasn't gaining enough weight and she wasn't sleeping at night. She had sleep apnea because of adenoids and all of these things. And she was constantly sick and she just believed that there was something essentially wrong with her body. We never knew if that was gonna end or if she would have this for life. But I want you to see that picture because she went out and she played soccer for Palmer 
this year as a freshman, and she led her as a varsity soccer player. But more important, more important than that, last year at the Echo Missions Conference, my daughter Kate stood right there, and as she stood right there, I came up to her and said, Kate, what's going on? And she said, Dad, I want to go. I want to go. Wherever God calls me, I want to go, which told me this one thing. She was no longer focused on herself, her body, or even protecting it because she had learned through the school of hard knocks, she had learned that no matter what it was, she could trust God with her body, she could trust God with her future, and if God wanted to call her to Africa or call her to her neighbor, if God wanted it, it would happen. And she just wanted to be on board with that. And I identify her as a saint with great courage. She's had to overcome many wilderness experiences, but today, she's on my podium. Today, she's the one that I would say, this is evidence of what courage can do in a life of a believer. And I would testify to the work of God in her life, and I am so proud of my daughter, Kate. Which leaves me with this question. What if we lived like we knew what was on the horizon? See, Kate didn't know if she's going to go to Africa or cross the street. God didn't tell her those things, not yet. She was simply saying this, it looks good on the horizon because I'm not alone. And whatever it is that God is calling me into, I'm going to walk there. That's what I'm going to do. Whatever the cost or how long it takes or how much tent putting up or tearing down I have to do or whatever it is that I have to eat to get there that's what I'm going to do because I believe that there's something good for me and for the next generation on the horizon and I'm going to be faithful and I'm going to take the failures that I experienced and I'm going to translate them into faith what God was about was taking a generation that had failed and saying Moses I want you to write this down so that this coming generation is characterized not by failure, but by courage that leads to confidence, by faith. Let me pray for you. Lord, we don't know what the future is, and because we don't know what the future is in its detail in this life, we actually have way more confidence. Because what we do know in addition to that is that what we see on the horizon is the person of Jesus Christ beckoning us on. Whether that's in our families, with our children, at work, that great idea that we've never executed, but you know you're calling us to be courageous right there, that's what you're calling us toward. You're there. Help us to be faithful to you, even if it's to be baptized. Thank you, God for everything you mean to us. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more of our podcasts and to discover how you can connect, visit us at churchak.org or download our Church on the Rock AK app from either iTunes or Google Play.